Welcome to the Apple Store Sydney, everybody. Would you please join me in welcoming our guests, Simon Stone, Jan Chapman, Nicole O'Donoghue, and tonight's moderator, Cassie McCullough. Wow. Great to see you all. I told you you'd need to talk after seeing that film. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you haven't just come from the State Theatre, uh, we are here to talk about a film that's just screened as part of the Sydney Film Festival. It's called The Daughter. It's directed by Simon and uh, produced by Jan and Nicole. Uh, we'll talk for a while. I'll ask them a few questions. But then I'm really keen to hear questions that you might have. So really, um, what always happens is everyone hesitates at the beginning and then... Uh, we don't have time for the questions at the end, so get in early and often. Um, my heart just leapt a little bit because I just spotted you and Leslie in the audience there. Hello. Um, you just... Yeah. I don't know about you, but I just feel like someone got my heart and wrung it out like a sponge and then put me onto George Street. Um, I guess, where shall we start? Why don't we start with Simon and why you love Ibsen, why you love this story and, and why you've told it twice now, once on stage and once as a film. Um, well, the first time it was because I was looking for a, a play to... Uh, we, were, I need, we were doing the first show of the new... Um, artistic directorship of Belvoir and um, I needed a play with six people in it and so I chose a play with 36 people in it. Um, uh, um, I was, yeah, we, we, we had plans to do something else and that fell through and I kind of had to very quickly choose a play. I had already adapted one of, uh, well, rewritten one of Ibsen's plays, Little Eyolf, um, a couple of years beforehand. Um, and I, so it made sense to go looking for an Ibsen. Um, and it just struck a chord at that particular... But it was actually a very pragmatic thing. It was like, I reckon I can do this show with six people. Um, uh, but then, obviously, while we were working on it, it started, you know, kind of having a great level of resonance as a modern story, and I kind of um, pushed the boundaries of how much I was rewriting the story further than I had in any of my previous work and so I kind of really started writing a new script um, with a very different structure to the original script and, and, and very different stories. Um, and then these guys just thought that I should make a film out of it and, and they asked me to and I said yes, you know, so it was really as simple as that. I had an opportunity to make a feature film and <laughs> And I wanted to do that, and, and yeah, I mean, then we had to reinvent it completely all over again. Which one of you was it that made that decision, and what did you see in the, in the, the play? Well, I guess Jan and I both see 
a lot of theatre at Belvoir and um, at that particular time there was a real new guard, you know, a real change over there and we're incredibly impressed with, with the work and, and we'd both seen the play and I, I knew Simon already um, and so I sort of had a... And you still wanted to work with him? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know him that well, no. Um, but so I, I sort of mentioned it to Simon and, and he was keen and um, Jan and I, I sort of work out of Jan's office. I have a renter space there. So we're kind of physically in the same space seeing each other every day and we, we really kept talking about it and, and Jan was sort of like, you know, what's happening with that? And... Um, I said, oh, well, we're not really Simon's overseas and we're not really moving, you know, not, nothing's happening. And she said, let's, let's do this, sort of. Um, and wanted to, you know, we wanted to produce it together. Uh, so, yeah, that's really the genesis. And, and produce it you did. And you just seemed to have scored some of the most extraordinary talent working on Australian screens and, and, and floorboards. What are they called? Like in, what are they called in theatres, Simon? Well, Treading I, mean, I, the go, boards. I can't <laughs> think of them either. The boards, treading the boards. The boards, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, treading the floorboards. Yeah. How, how did that come about? I mean, the, the um, I think um, very early on, Jeffrey Rush became um, attached to the project. We, uh, we went down to Melbourne and showed him the script and talked to him about it, and he'd seen a lot of Simon's work and I think wanted to work with him. Amazing. Um, but having someone like Jeffrey on board really early on is just such a gift because he. I mean, obviously, he gives the project a certain press prestige and people feel like there's something solid there. But also his commitment and his support and his um, just strength, really, as, as a human being is just so fantastic. Ewan, of course, had been in the play and um, I think Ewan was always going to be <laughs> definitely part of this project. And then we just gradually talked about different people. Um, Odessa came to a very early um, workshop we had when we were still working on the script and we, we weren't sure if she was right in a way um, and then later Simon auditioned her and we were very sure. <laughs> what is her background? Where has she come from? She's, uh, she's studying at um, the, the Newtown um, Performing Arts School um, and she's just started... Um, she, doing feature films. I think ours was the second one. We'd seen her in a short too, hadn't we? Yeah. But um, she's an extraordinary girl, obviously. I mean, um, and really that audition she did with Simon was just really so um, completely convincing. Um, and you worked with her quite a lot, didn't you, in that process? Okay, this is a really uh, trivial question, but did, did she... Is that her natural hair? <laughs> is that the hair that she oh, chose? Pink. That... No. Um, I tried to... She's, she's very beautiful, and I tried to do as much as I could to kind of make her less beautiful. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, she's still, she's still, you know, gorgeous in the film, but, like, it would... It, you know, you don't want to kind of have a sense of an aestheticised kind of, like look at teenage dysfunction like I, I wanted, you know, I wanted a very normal dysfunctional teenager. Yeah, I, I just, it was such an authentic look she had, I thought that's how she must have just turned up because, it, yeah, it was great. No, I, I, I came up with the idea one day for the nose ring and the, and the pink hair and everyone just went, really? 
And I said, you have to remember that it's Odessa and that she spends a lot of her time being incredibly swatty and smart and everything like that. So we want a contradiction to that rather than... <laughs> Had to put a yeah. bit of Tasmania into her. Yeah. I can say that because we're very safely here in uh, George Street, Sydney. Um, I want to get on to some things including uh, why Tasmania... Um, it wasn't Tasmania. Wasn't it? No. Did I just imagine it was set there? You imagined it. <laughs> New South Wales. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell us about where, where, how, you, how and why you chose that location. Well, um, I mean, I, I did write it imagining Tasmania. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, Screen New South Wales had supported us so incredibly from the beginning of the project. And, and they said to us, look, you, sh you have to be able to find a way to shoot it here because we want to keep supporting you. And... Um, they said, we reckon you can find the place, and, and they lined us up with a locations manager um, who didn't end up being able to work on the film, um, but who was incredible and kind of took us to Tumut um, in southern New South Wales at the foot of the snowy mountains. Um, and every single location that was in the script, and I know that location scouting doesn't work like this because I'd heard lots of stories about it not working like this, and... Um, and in my experience of acting in films, know how much you have to cheat everything. But we arrived in this town, uh, these two towns, Tumut and Batlow, separated by about 30 kilometres, um, and literally every single location in the script was there. Like, and we just kind of found it by just driving around, and, and we found it within a day, and I was like, this is, like, unbelievable. So was... I realise now what might have made me think it was Tasmania, and that was the logging truck, and, and I, maybe that was... Uh, but were you looking for a, well, a sort of Norwegian landscape? Um, I was looking for a timber town, um, uh, and I had written, you know, and I was looking for uh, something that was like Tasmania, because that was what was in my mind. Um, but it was kind of what was... What was, I mean, the, the important thing for the film is that there's, that there's an acknowledgement of this kind of borrowed industry that, that, that is, you know, because so much of the film is about the representation of a truth that is incredibly aesthetically and soulfully appealing to the people around that lie. Um, but it's, you know, it's turned into a very beautiful truth and, you know, Pine trees in Australia are a lie, but they're very beautiful. And the shots in, in, in them, floating through them, you go, oh, that's really beautiful. But it's in Australia and they don't belong... Those trees don't belong where they've been planted. Um, and the kind of devastation that results, you know, as a result of the practice of the landscape is, is also kind of heartbreaking as well. So it kind of... It, I was looking, and, and that, that is an acknowledgement of the kind of European ancestry of that idea as well and of that aesthetic, but it's, it's also kind of that thematic um, through line. Mm. Yeah, I, I was wondering whether the trucks and the end of the business and the extraction from the environment of all that, uh, well, natural resource was part of what had created the, or laid the groundwork for the tragedy that kind of yeah unfold. and also i mean now that the now that the mill is being closed the, the landscape is going to have an opportunity to heal um but it's going to be kind of gnarly and <laughs> messy healing that happens you know in that landscape now that the logging company is closing 
Um, so before we get on to some of the more filmic aspects, I want to talk about the story because as we arrived, a woman was talking to me and she said, um, it's so interesting what it's about. It's that if, if you don't, I'm paraphrasing and I'm sorry if I'm not getting this right. Each of the characters uh, was unable to get past something. And in the end, if you don't get past it, it's the innocent who will pay the price. Uh, is, is that the core of this story for you? Yeah, I mean, the core of it really is that a whole heap of people are trying to find a solution to um, their own messed up, um, you know, uh, psychological background. And uh, the reason they're doing that is because this person has arrived that has kind of, uh, you know, unsettled the surface and, and everything's coming back up. And um, I suppose the whole point of what I was trying to, you know, the, the tragedy that I'm trying to explore really is that these people are trying to be as, as they're trying, everyone's trying to get resolution and everyone's trying to make their life better and the life of the people around them better in the film, even down to the person who, you know, people might think is the most selfish in the film, Christian, he really genuinely believes that he has discovered something important about his own life and that he needs to share that with the people around him. And that his um, mother was sacrificed to lies and, and deception and, and the kind of um, dark, secretive relationship and he sees that the perpetuation of that in his own life and in the life of his best friend is going to destroy everyone and to a certain extent he's right but to a certain extent um, everyone has their own version of fucked up and you have to let them live it um, and and so yeah of course the person who has the least awareness of the complications of of, of everyone's story is the person who becomes the victim because the thing is, and this is a particularly important thing in the film, I remember when I was 14, 15, I remember everything felt like it was happening for the very first time because it was happening for the very first time and I had no empirical evidence that things were gonna get better when things were bad, none whatsoever. So when something falls apart, you think it's gonna be fallen apart forever. And the thing is, a lot of the adults in the story also behave like that, but they don't tell, you know, for example, Oliver doesn't tell um, her, by the way, I'm going to be really furious for about two weeks and probably screw a whole heap of things up and say really mean things and be a little um, bitch about everything. But that's what adults do, and, and he, after a month, they're okay and they're talking to each other again. He doesn't say that because he doesn't kind of, he's behaving like the child all of a sudden. She's trying to take responsibility for their relationship. And that inversion should never happen, of course. You know, a daughter should never be trying to convince her father that they have a relationship to keep. Um, but, you know, so, you know, the, 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 victim, the victim is the person with the least um, ability and the least skills uh, to, to see perspective. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting that you say that Christian is the person who's most at fault because for me it's, it's clearly um, Henry, uh, the <laughs> Geoffrey Rush's character who's really set the seeds of <clears throat> so much pain for so long and is still kind of perpetuating it, it seems to me. Uh, do you want to and say something Charlotte? about this? 
What are you going to say, Charlotte? Charlotte. Ooh. Um, I think it's really interesting that different people feel, you know, that different characters in the film um, should have done this or shouldn't have done that or... Um, yeah, I mean, personally, when I first saw the play, I had a, a lot of trouble with why Charlotte did that. And um, I mean, I think that, that what attracted me to the project is, is a sense of recognition about quite deep feelings you have yourself. You mightn't have lived that exact situation, but you felt something of that agony or of pain in some argument or some feeling of disruption in your family life. And... I think um, being able to recognise those feelings really helps you to know that we're all the same kind of people, really, and that we all share, you know, difficult times. Um, and it's very strong in Simon's work, the, the, um, the emotional intensity, the emotional truth, really. And, and no one escapes it. What about you, Nicole? Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, that's absolutely what drew Jan and I both to it. Um, I think, you know... Who do you, you think's the worst person? What's that? Who, oh, who, who do I think's the worst person? Um, We're not allowed yeah, to play this game because no. it defeats the entire purpose of the film that's been made. Yeah, it's... I, no comment. <laughs> Very good. But what were you going to say? I interrupted oh, no, you. I was just going to say that it's so, you know, I mean, I like to watch films that, you know, move me or, or that sort of you can... You feel changed by them and, and it resonates with something in your own life, is what Jan's saying. So... Yeah, you, we really want to make those kind of films as well that will really connect with, resonate with the audience. Um, now, there's four films uh, at this festival which all originated on the stage. There's uh, Reuben Guthrie, uh, Brendan Cowell's story, uh, also which has a theme of alcoholism, which is something emerging perhaps in Australian film. Um, there's Just emerging now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been around for a while. <laughs> Maybe, perhaps. Um, there's also Holding the Man, Tommy Murphy's uh, film, which is being directed by Neil Armfield. And all three of those plays were from Belvoir, although uh, I think Holding the Man was... Or Reuben Guthrie was first on stage at Griffin. No, Holding the Holding Man the was Man. at Griffin yeah. first. And there's also another one, um, which Jeremy Sims is behind, Last Cab to Darwin. Jan, do you think that this is... Um, I mean, is this a trend? <laughs> Are we seeing the emergence? Is, is the Australian film industry of such a size that we need to see them tested on stage before they move to the screen? No, I, I don't think that's the way it comes about. I mean, I, I made Lantana too, which was based on Andrew Bavell's own play. Um, but I think, I mean, as a producer, I'm attracted to all kinds of different material. It might be an idea that someone tells me or a half a page they've written or um, um, a book or... Um, I mean, I do think that the, the work that particularly Belvoir were doing at that stage was very, very strong and very exciting and I felt um, kind of groundbreaking in a way that even the cinema I was seeing people doing was not um, exploring in, in the same way. So I think it's sort of no accident that these a number of works have come out of that particular period of theatre in Australia because I think it was just really exciting and really good. But I don't think we need to test our films on the stage first. What challenges were there uh, in translating it 
ones that had already been translated from the 1885 play to a very contemporary version that Simon had created uh, to this story. What, what were those challenges? I mean, I think, I, I think the challenge is really just sort of deciding which way to go with it. I mean, we, we sort of worked on the screenplay probably over a year. I think Simon had a very clear vision about you know, the kind of film he wanted to make in terms of... And the plot was there and the structure was there. Um, but there were things that, you know, we had put in and then we took out or, or we'd flip things around. So, I don't know, you talked to that as well, obviously. Yeah, I, look, it was... Um, I actually find it, found it quite um, challenging um, to, to feel like I was inventing something from the ground up. Um, you know, I've... I wanted to write a screenplay feeling like I was writing a new screenplay and there were times where it really felt like that um, and there were times at which it kind of felt like it was, it was trying to not be what something else had been but be slightly what the other thing had been and, and so uh, the, key to, the key to it really to kind of to when I, my imagination really started sparking and, and being able to see it as a new thing was when I realised that where it was set and, and what the world was, uh, what the socio-economic details were, and yeah, the landscapes and, and the places. And, and um, once that was in my mind, I could then kind of go about writing a new version of that story. And I didn't refer to the play. These guys did. They went, how about that bit, you know, in the play? And hey, where's that gone, that bit that made me cry and that bit? Um, whereas I, w I was kind of just going, well, I need to write a new screenplay now. And, and, and I just wrote the same. And the bits that I quoted from the play, um, like from the play that I wrote, people rec that people recognise, I didn't look at the, the play. They just came out of my brain from the, from the spontaneously as I was in the middle of writing a scene. Um, yeah. Um, I'm imagining that most of the people here have just seen the film and so we're going to just tread very lightly over so something that may be a bit of a spoiler if you haven't. Um, the ending, um, I, I guess, is, it's ambiguous or is it very non-ambiguous and a departure <laughs> from, um, from both Ibsen's work and your previous version? Um... I, I suppose the important thing is that there's a, uh, the important thing that happens at the end is the response that Oliver has to what he's done um, in a, a few scenes earlier. That's the important thing in, at the end of the of film and, and the important thing is that a couple is holding each other. Um, now, regardless of what the outcome of the next scene, the last scene of the film is, um, they've confronted something about the past and it's now all really null and void. And I guess everything... I guess <laughs> if there's a moral to the story, you should kind of live every moment of your life imagining that you could end up in that situation and doing whatever you can to... to forget anything that might seem petty under those circumstances because if you can forget it under those circumstances just imagine yourself in that circumstance and then forget it. <laughs>
Is that how people sort of felt towards the end? That was, yeah. So characters in extremis um, and, well, facing, yeah. Um, now, there's some interesting editing techniques. Um, this kind of just washed over me, not being a massive cinephile and, and understanding the language of, of film editing, but people with me were going, that was really um, distinctive. Um, perhaps, Jan, you could tell us about the editor and the style that she chose? Um, I think you'd have to say the style that Simon chose, actually. <laughs> um, the editor was Veronica Genet. She's a fantastic editor. She edited The Piano. Um, she edited um, Snowtown. Uh, many great Australian Strangerland, films. Strangerland, which is... Strangerland, which is on um, tonight. Yeah. No, really, really a, a, a incredibly rigorous editor, but... Actually, Simon went away for a month after we finished shooting to do another play, and when he came back, he, he just had the film in his head completely. And that editing style, Veronica and Simon worked on with, with Nick and I out of the room for, for some time, and we were finally allowed to come in and have a look. And it just was so exciting, because he'd been talking about overlapping scenes when we were shooting, but it took on a whole new level when you came back, and I guess that's what you had in your mind. Or did it, or did it develop when you were away? It, it de well, um, I kind of stored all the rushes in my head um, when I watched them, so they all just kind of stayed there. And then while I was doing the play in Amsterdam, I kind of um, would play the rushes back in my head and I would try and edit the film together in my head. And, and slowly I kind of realised that... Um, that the way to make sure that we got to where we needed to get to... Um, I mean, the thing about this film is there's, there's like three or four scenes that are really important for the audience to be at the very centre of the drama and the performances and to be able to pay a lot of attention to what's happening in that moment to realise the stakes of that moment. If the rest of the film also felt like it was that important, um, because there's a lot of talking, but there's also a lot of kind of seemingly very important emotional baggage for the characters. If you're already feeling that at the beginning, then you get a lot of ennui. Um, and the thing is, you know, you get drama ennui and you don't want to keep watching, and then you get to the important scene and people are already a little bit tired of that. And you've got all of these characters who are coming into the story with a lot of emotional baggage, like enough emotional baggage for the climax of another film. Um, and you need to be very careful that it feels like that's a memory and it's as far away from these people, even though they're carrying it every day, as, as the 16 years are, uh, of the story, actually uh, pre-story, have it. And, and so it kind of meant that, we kind, that I really wanted this sense of, 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 you know, these people have things that they're obsessing over. Time is out of joint seeing this place makes him feel that, but it also makes him project forward to that and remember that, and that feels the same for that character, and they're connected by this moment, and time feels completely like a memory and like a resurgence of all sorts of um, uh, kind of synaptical firings that are suddenly happening, you know, that we, all of us, in this room would have had an experience where we returned to a place uh, of significant um, trauma or, or joy in our life 
and to the kind of feeling that you're actually not really present in that moment, you're present in the moment that happened there. Um, and that kind of use of time and space to make sure that these people were kind of living in the past as much as they're living in the present. And then they're lurched into the present by um, the kind of confluence of, of, of events that suddenly mean that the present moment is suddenly happening. And that's kind of what happens at the wedding with the punch. You know, it just suddenly snaps the film into a real, a very real situation. Um, so, um, I can't even remember what uh, a question I'm answering. <laughs> but you've actually answered it beautifully. Uh, I was asking um, you about this editing style. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah so that's kind of what we were... Yeah, I mean, we were kind of pursuing... I was pursuing making sure that we got to that moment without, without um, people having kind of... You know, the hierarchy of important moments in a film are incredibly... You know, it's really... Is, is, it's a really significant balance. You have to make sure that the climax feels like a climax and you have to make sure that the beginning feels like a beginning. Um, and the way to achieve that with this particular subject matter was to kind of let it float and, and, and feel fateful. And to a certain extent, to feel like at the beginning of the film, even though you're going to spend about 45 minutes before you know actually what the film's about, which is... Uh, like a golden rule in, in screenwriting, people say, make sure people know what the film's about within the first 10 minutes. Um, and we were kind of breaking that rule to a great degree because the, the, you know, the actual, the, the catalyst is an arrival, of course, but you don't know what that means at the beginning. So we're kind of stretching that out for about 45 minutes. And so what I needed to do with the editing style and what Veronica and I, and I kind of found was you can make, you can use a certain kind of technique to make people know what the end of the film is going to be just through the way that you're treating your characters and the way that you're treating time and event. Um, so to a certain extent, the audience is aware. And Mark's, Mark Bradshaw's music does that really beautifully as well. And I kind of told him at the beginning that uh, when we, before we even started working together, I said, this film needs to already be mourning the events that happen in the film at the end, at the beginning. Um, and so there's various different techniques that you can use to make people go, oh, if I keep watching, something significant will happen. And actually, you know what? I'm going to enjoy the banality and mundane reality of all of these families more because I have a sense that something terrible is going to happen at the end. Yeah, I haven't seen a more classic uh, version of Chekhov's gun than in, this, <laughs> in yeah. this film. You know, the old idea that if you show a gun on stage, then at some point you're going to have to fire it, you know. Um, yeah, there is something looming and ominous. Now, get ready with your questions because um, some people will be, have some microphones that you can... Um, yeah, but I'm going to do something a bit rude. Can we give uh, the microphone to uh, Ewan Leslie here for a moment? Would you mind, you Ewan? Doing? I'm sure you've got a bit of... Um... Good day. Uh, look, firstly, congratulations and, you know... Oh, cheers. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. I don't think I've seen so much mascara running down people's necks that I saw last night. It was a real, the, the ladies' change rooms after the lights came up was very full. Um, tell us about finding that agonising kind of fault that, that you had to find. That moment, I just think of that moment where your leg wraps around Miranda oh, Otto's. Yeah, you yeah. Know, that, I just felt that. So how do you find that? Oh, look, I don't really know... 
I don't know. I mean, the, the, the funny thing about playing this character in this film is that for most of the film, I'm the one person who really doesn't realise that he's in a drama. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm the only person who knows... I have zero stakes, except I've lost my job. But everyone else around me kind of knows that there's some secret, la, la, la. And then at about two-thirds through, you just make a very sharp turn. And, uh, you know, the most important thing for me was um, the relationship with the family and with Odessa, really. Like, you spend the first two-thirds building up that relationship to tear it all down for the last sort of third or quarter of the film. Yeah. I just want to make a comment about the scene that you're referring to in the corridor um, where he wrapped, wrapped his legs I'm uh, around I'm avoiding answering that, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I sprung that on them two days before they were actually supposed to shoot it. Um, I just suddenly felt we were shooting certain things in, in, in the location and I went, it's time for us to shoot that scene. And Miranda and Ewan were absolutely terrified, like to the point that, you know, they were kind of threatening to say, no, we're not going to shoot this scene. And they were on the edge of saying, no, we're not going to shoot this scene. And I went, no, you, you'll shoot the scene. And, um, and th so they had no preparation time. They just, they just literally just did it. And they, they hadn't really run the lines or anything, had no, you? No. no. Well, we didn't, I didn't know the lines, yeah. No. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, you can't really, I don't know. You just sort of have to... <laughs> You can't really plan what you're going to do. I, I, there was certainly no part of me going, oh, I'll slide down the wall and then I'll wrap my legs around. You know, Miranda, I might, I might wrap my legs around you. You know what I mean? Like, you kind of just kind of throw yourself into it and, and hope for the best. Um, we, the principle that we always had with those scenes was I would, wouldn't let there be any rehearsals, which was not a popular thing with the, the camera crew, obviously, because they want to make sure that they can get it in focus and stand in the right place and... Um, but uh, th those particularly key raw emotional scenes, I wouldn't let there be any rehearsals. So often it's the first take, and it's actually the first rehearsal as well. Like we've kind of basically just gone, well, we'll walk down this corridor, but we have no idea really what's going to happen next. Um, and then you just do it. And, and the thing about Andy Comas, the cinematographer, he was also operating, and he's, I, I think he's the best handheld operator that I've ever seen, worked with, and certainly the result is kind of unbelievable. There's a lot of scenes that you guys wouldn't really be aware are handheld, I think, um, that he was hand-holding, because he had just the... He just had the, the, the delicacy and the... He, there, there's certain camera um, people who, even when you haven't rehearsed it, know exactly where the person's going to go, and somehow they just get it. Um, and he was uh, incredible at that. He'd kind of preempt that someone was going to slide to the floor before they even knew that they were going to do it. Um, and it was a kind of great delight, and that's what made it easier to work like that, where I was kind of being really unfair to the camera crew, and, but in order to protect the performances, that they really were discovering this scene for the very first time. And a lot of the film is in, in, is in the moment where an actor who hasn't really learnt their lines, um, you know, just starts experiencing the moment. And, and to a certain extent, that meant that I was talking through takes as well and the sound team um, said that their first and biggest job on the film was to remove my voice um, from it. Maybe, maybe you could sell that as a uh, DVD extra. 
Not a bad idea. No, I don't sound... I'm, I'm shouting most of the time to be heard, but it's, I sound quite unpleasant. <laughs> Thanks very much for taking a question without notice, Stuart. Um, I, I guess, I mean, do we have burning questions? Are we, are we, yep, someone, yeah, ready to jump up? Right, right down here, great. Firstly, I just wanted to say congratulations. Um, it was a very powerful film. Um, I was a big fan of the of the stage production, and um, I think the cinematic quality was um, what managed to meet my or satiate my very huge expectations. Um, the ending, uh, exclusion of the epilogue, um, and the intercut dialogue. But there was just one thing I couldn't couldn't let go of, and I, and and I, my question, I guess, is about killing your darlings from the, the stage production. But I remember, um, I thought Miranda was amazing, but I remember Anita uh, retching grief, lying prostate on the side of the stage. I'm just wondering, yeah, how do you let go of things? I mean, I think I need to let go of it, but... How did I let go of an empty stage with a, with a woman prostate on it? It was, was just, I didn't have an empty stage and... and and I mean, you know, symbols are completely different in different art forms. So, I mean, I I could tell, I, like, I could go and make a film out of the same story today, um, set in Shanghai. You know, if I did the amount of research that I would need to do for that to be an honest depiction of this story in Shanghai. Um, so it really wasn't so much about about what I was killing or not, because the strength of the story is Henrik Ibsen's original kind of conception of this family um, falling apart. And, and so I just, I just did it for the year that we were making the film in, for the people that were gonna be in it, for the group of people I was making it with, and invented it for that reality. And um, thinking about what you've lost um, is, you know, I guess it's also kind of what the film's about. Um, you have to kind of um, hold on to things while you've got them and then kind of focus on the things that you now have when you, you know, have invented something new. So I wasn't really thinking about it that much. And also theatre is a completely different art form and film is a completely different art form. Um, you know, if I was trying to hold on to um, something from... Uh, sculpture that I had once made when I made a film, you know, how on earth would you manifest that? Um, it's kind of as different with theatre and film, and it can be misleading because they both involve people, actors talking, um, but they're very, very different art forms. Uh, Jan or Nicole, did you find that process of, of changing this version difficult yourselves? Um, we were attached to the stage play. <laughs> We really loved it too. Um, I mean, I saw it, I muted to it in um, Sydney and in Melbourne and those actors were sublime. Um, well, we should say it won three Helpman Awards, Best Play, Best Supporting <laughs> Actor uh, for Anthony, Anthony Phelan and Anita got one too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were wonderful. But it was very much a process of, of Simon encouraging us to let go of it. I mean, we actually tried... <laughs> a number of scenarios with the story before we came back to this one. In fact, I still have lingering feelings about some of those versions of it that I miss a bit. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I think Simon's answered the question. <laughs> yeah, I think Simon's got a bit of form on this as well. I, I understand that with the stage production, a week before opening night, Simon decided that the whole order of the <laughs> scene that you, you and Nodding was going to be changed and reverted to a linear version of the story, which, who knows, maybe the other one would, would have been just as good. Um, and also... Um, I think, Ewan, did you receive... I know that some actors received text on the opening night day. You did, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just printed out little gifts of text on opening night uh, for them to very quickly learn and then perform that evening, which is what we did on set as well. We, you know, I would go, you should say that, you should say that, say that in the scene, yeah, then say that. And, and, and Ewan was improvising as well and he had complete freedom to do that from me. Um, uh, and I would then kind of, you know, doctor his improvisations after a take and go, yeah, maybe you can say that version of your improvisation. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's just the thing that it keeps being in response to your question. It just keeps being a new thing. Yeah, yeah it's sort of, I think, I just had a thought that it's, it's kind of constantly evolving almost until you really lock off the edit even. Like it's something that the moment that you're in or a memory that you have about something through the development process, you know, we would kind of, yeah, watch it evolve. And Yeah, I, I wrote new text for ADR, um, yeah. you know, that people can't, oh, you know, off-screen lines, I've found ways of kind of either simplifying dialogue or, or clarifying stuff and... And that process of endlessly being able to write is just delightful. Yeah, for you, it is. Yeah. <laughs> when was no, the it's edit for, locked it, off? No, it's good, for, it's good for audiences, actually. I mean, that's, I mean the, the thing is that, you know, the, the arrogance of someone assuming that they've written something that's brilliant and that it should just be done and finished and please, you know, go and make this make it work actors is something that I've always tried to avoid and I'm always trying to cover up my own mistakes when I'm writing and that's essentially yeah, what look, the process is. I'm just is. thinking of the people changing all their lighting cues, you know, <laughs> a week out. Um, okay, some more questions over here. Yeah, great. Congratulations to the three of you on the film. Um, I just wanted to ask Simon, going from being a theatre director to a feature film director, which is a huge step, um, how you found that process and what you learned along the way? Um, the thing about films is that you have to prepare, and I generally don't prepare. Um, I, I, I try to make things as spontaneous as I possibly can. Uh, all of my best ideas come when I've managed to distract myself from the fact that we're doing work. Um, and all of the actors' best work happens when we've managed to distract them from the fact that we're doing work. And the line between just socialising and creating work in my theatre rehearsal rooms is completely blurred. Um, and often actors don't realise that they've started rehearsing a scene until they realise that everyone's stopped talking and now they're in the middle of rehearsing it. Um, and I guess that's hard on film because, you know, you've got a lot more money at stake, you've got a whole heap of logistical things that need to be there and, and av available, ready and, and, and working uh, for you when you start shooting. And it's only 30 days and you've got to get it quickly and you've got to make sure you've done all the prep you can possibly do to get there. It goes against most of my instincts to tell people what I want. Um, uh, 
So I was trying to hold on to as much ability to innovate as possible in, this, in the actual moment of doing it, um, which I suppose was, I suppose the way I kind of reconciled myself to that was um, to just do all the preparation and know that essentially all the, all the um, key factors were going to be in place and then I could kind of jumble them up however I wanted to. And, and, and also I knew that I had actors who were going to be able to do that with me as well. Um, but it was confusing for the first couple of days because for the first couple of days I was trying to chase a shot list that we, because I decided I was going to be a responsible director and be prepared. Uh, and I kind of signed on to that idea and then I was chasing the shot list on the first couple of days and then I think I realised I needed to just work the way my brain works. Which, and, and so we started not knowing how, how we were going to shoot things very quickly after that. And um, like I say, Andy was incredible at being spontaneous in that way. and and. Yeah, we had, you know, once I discovered the rule, which was nobody's allowed to watch rehearsals, um, it was all okay again. Um, because essentially then there was a very... Because in, in, in the, in the theatre um, rehearsals that I do, um, we usually only block scenes, um, choreograph the movements of scenes very quickly, like Ewan will be able to attest to this. It's kind of like once we're doing it on the floor, it's probably about you know, about the same amount of time that you have on a film rehearsal um, on set. And then the rest of it is just everyone sitting around a table talking to each other, doing their lines over and over again. On film, you don't need to bother doing that because it's not like you have to do the whole thing in one go. So actually, it was quite similar in some ways because we very quickly figured out who was going to move where, do what, how. Um, and then we just got on to shooting it. Um, so there were similarities and there were difficulties, but... I mean, my work in both areas is focused on the actor. Um, those two things are not that fundamentally different in the two different fields. Just uh, quickly, but, um, speaking of the actors, Jeffrey obviously is very uh, much a stage man. Sam, I don't think is as much. No. How did he respond to this um, style that you're talking about? Uh, he lapped it up. He loved it. Um, what Sam did was he, because Sam always went, gave me three options uh, of, of performance. He would go, do you want him to be angry? Do you want him to be disappointed? Or do you want him to be angry and slightly disappointed? Um, uh, and, and he literally gave me multiple choice at the beginning of each scene, aware that we, did, we didn't have enough time to do multiple that many takes. And I would go and pick my letter um, and say B, and then he would give me B, and sometimes I'd then have to ask him to do C as well. But um, he, the thing about Sam is that he manages to just, he, he, takes, he has a completely intellectual conversation with you about it, and it makes you go, oh no, he's gonna prepare that, the whole thing, and it's not gonna be spontaneous. And, but by having done that, he's then able to be entirely spontaneous on, in the moment of shooting it. So, I mean, I, we, 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 I directed different actors differently as well. And, and the, the key thing as a director is always to find out how the, you know, how the actor needs to be directed and how the actor wants to be directed and kind of be most open to that. It was a great performance from Sam, wasn't he? A beautiful character. One of the other innocents, I suppose, um, of the story, yeah. Um, have we got a question? Yeah, here. We'll come to you next. 
Hi, Simon. Thank you for a beautiful film. I really enjoyed it. Um, can I come back to the story? Um, yeah, please. I've, I'm a bit, bit disappointed that no one has mentioned the duck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as I remember in, this, in the Ibsen uh, play, uh, the duck has a hugely symbolic um, role, and I was wondering whether you could tell us about that in your version of the story. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a fan of symbols. Um, uh, I, have a, I have a little bit of a... I mean, symbols are things that everyone... Like, for example, I, I think the difference between a metaphor and a symbol is that metaphors can be interpreted by each person according to their own imagination uh, differently. And a symbol is something that everyone's agreed means something together, which is why kind of religious symbols mean a very specific thing and everyone agrees what they are. Um, and to a certain extent, in Ibsen's play... He's going, he's going about as a writer defining the symbols, um, the symbol of the dark. And um, that made me, in, in one draft, seriously get rid of the duck so that I could be freed of this kind of... I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a kind of... It's a bit of a cliché having a, a teenager's relationship to an animal in an arthouse film. I mean, you know, like... So I kind of was going, uh, I really don't feel that great about this. But then I realised that um, it was important uh, to, you know, that if, if the metaphor is connected to the character, if it comes out of the actual character's experience, then it is valuable because there are human beings out there that have incredibly strong relationships with animals and just because they've become a cliche doesn't mean that they're not real. And um, also someone who is um, at a point in their life that Hedvig gets to where she's decided to do what she's decided to do, um, what she does when she um, tells her duck that her duck has to go and live on its own now is is it is ridiculous um and that's kind of what's tragic about it is that she's made a decision that this is a meaningful event it's not a meaningful event to us uh in any other way than her projection of it being meaningful and that's what's sad about it because she thinks in this kind of um dysfunctional handing over of the problems of her own relationship with her parent, that she, as a parent to this thing, <clears throat> needs to also behave in this way. And that kind of level of kind of filtering down from generation to generation, which is what happens in the story from Jeffrey's character down, this kind of constant handing over of kind of, of dysfunction. Um, what what what's interesting about that is it gets so it gets so ridiculously everyone is so ridiculously ir irresponsible that eventually even a duck is involved <laughs> in this family drama and that i find interesting if it's ridiculous and heartbreaking then it's interesting as opposed to meaningful and you know i so i you know in in the ibsen play every single character compares themselves or one of the other person people in the in the play to a duck at some point, um, uh, which is quite funny, but um, that level of self-awareness about metaphor is something that I, I can't quite stand. Um, yeah. The, the duck is a very strong presence, and thank you for asking that. It, it does bring a gentleness and a softness to uh, 
an otherwise very dark at times story. And I don't know if anyone saw Wolf Hall, the adaptation of the Hilary Mantel uh, books just recently, and every second scene someone is holding a little animal, a, a rabbit or a bird or something, and it, it brings a very elemental... Uh, feeling to the story. We did have a question here. We're, we're hoping to get your... Thank you. Um, Simon, you talked a bit already about um, preserving spontaneity in the actors' performances, but I'm interested to know how much time did you spend with the actors during pre-production? Um, how was that process different to the way you rehearsed a, a theatre piece? And also whether your DP was part of that process? Um, Andy was very busy, so no, he couldn't be part of that. But um, we, he and I spent every day while I was rehearsing meeting as well. So just in order to maximise his time, he went and worked with his team and I worked with my team and we met at the end of the day and kind of kept on going through shots and how I was imagining things. And of course, when the actors had given me certain things in the rehearsal process, which lasted for about a week and a half... Um, in that, when they had kind of spontaneously done things that I kind of went, oh, that's going to be really interesting, I then had a different way of seeing this scene and then that would affect the shot listing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, um, yeah, we, re we rehearsed. I mean, you know, we kind of do... You kind of do a lo-fi version of just kind of not really acting but talking about what it, the scenes are about and you don't really go for it. I mean, with Odessa, that was the that was a very important period for me um, because Odessa, unlike the others, had to play someone who was... I mean, Ewan does this, but he's, he's used to it, play, play a character that's very different from himself, uh, whereas Odessa was, you know a 16-year-old girl and kind of taking on a transformation that is incredibly significant. If, you've, if you ever meet her or see her or see her talking in an interview, you'll realise that she's nothing like the character that she played. So I was very prescriptive with her and, like, from an early stage, kind of started to try and change the way that she thought about the events in the um, film... Uh, and a lot of her instincts were to respond the way she would respond to those events, which um, is different to the way a character that's kind of more naive and lost and isolated. I mean, this girl has very few um, socialising experiences in her life. She, they live in the middle of nowhere. Um, and you can't quite get an inner-city, new-town, performing arts high school girl to do that just spontaneously. I had to kind of go, well, this, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have that, she doesn't have that. Your response to that is that. You think this about that. Um, and so we kind of spent that rehearsal period, really the strongest thing was a lot of us talking with Odessa about the character she was going to create. Um, and then that, that continued then into the, into the shoot of, you know, and she was so incredibly... Um, Responsive. She just did everything that was asked of her without any, um, without any kind of hesitation, and she let herself fall, and 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 the results were, you know, as everyone keeps saying, extraordinary. Yeah, I just remembered that scene in the classroom, and I I, I went with somebody who was 19 years old, and I said, "Would that really happen?" And he was like, "Yeah, that would so happen." Yeah. I mean, in that, in that scene, for example, I kind of... Um, I had to just 
keep telling her to just be more irrational and more um, full on um, because the notion of being that kind of out of control for Odessa, who is incredibly in control and very wise, uh, was, was an alien thing. And you, I just kept pushing her, and eventually the, what you see on screen is, I think, the last take where she finally <laughs> lost it. You, you, you <laughs> sent her into some kind of momentary psychosis. Um, look, we do only have one or two minutes left. I wanted to see, is anyone... We haven't asked nearly enough questions of these brilliant women. Um, should we just finish on with one quick one? Really quick question. Henry's house in the film, what is it in real life? Um, it's Camden Park House. Owned by? Done, done with what? <laughs> it's, it's from the MacArthur family. Uh, it's an extraordinary, beautiful house. Oh, so it's not in Tumut or Tumbaronga? No, no, that's the no. one location that wasn't. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Or Tasmania. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, I was misleading when I said uh, we found all of our locations yeah, we, down there, I, it, yeah. the, apart from the mansion. We shot, we shot for the first sort of probably eight days out at this house in Camden, yeah. Well, look, um, I think we've, we've heard so much. It's, um, you know, we could stay here all night. But will you all join me in thanking uh, the three of these people? And you.